far, far more uh, away from the from Ukraine than I am, because uh, I think this is uh, uh, this is much more greater uh, of you that you are uh, finding time and uh, and. Uh, and to your will to uh, to in, to in, uh, be interesting and uh, helping uh, Ukraine. Slava Ukraini, bye bye. Toman, you have your hand up. Hello, Slava. Axel, I have a question for you before uh, from from DMs before uh, we take off and get switched out, um, because it will pain me greatly if we don't touch upon this. Because I promised the questioner we touch upon it and then we fail to. Uh, so, Axel, um, the questioner asks that they've just seen on the news that much of the Western world is predicted to have severe inflation and possibly even a recession in the case of the UK predicted for next year. How could this development hurt financial support for Ukraine, whether they're still at war with Russia or whether they're rebuilding um, after Russia has been booted out? How uh, is the economic situation going to affect you know, Western help to Ukraine? Well, the size of Western help for Ukraine uh, pales in comparison to uh, the overall spending of the Western world, and uh, there is certainly no limit. Uh, there is certainly currently no real shortage of liquidity. Let's put it this way. Yes, of course, lower growth in the West makes it more susceptible to infighting, budget issues, and severe challenges. And inflation rates, as we've seen them now, are, and make no mistake, a direct consequence of uh, how uh, the Western world has addressed the financial crisis of 2007-2008. And uh, the, what I would call, quantitative easing in ad infinitum, with its oversupply of uh, money, is ultimately the root cause for that inflation to hit. This is a structural issue. It is significant. It um, provides for very dark um, clouds on the horizon, but governments can still work to counter it. And if we are less um, navel-gazing and less focused on um, ideological entrenchment, then we can tackle such an amount of an inflation just as well. In that regard, war is a fantastic crystallizer and equalizer. I've said this many times. It crystallizes those issues which are urgent and important, as opposed to those which we consider important, and those which sometimes are just seemingly urgent. And as everybody who's ever done anything in management or has ever managed a kindergarten even knows, the urgent and important issues are the ones you address first. Inflation, as a result of structural deficiencies in our um, policies and how we waste money um, uh, is a key issue of our time. But it's a self-inflicted pain. We just have to make sure that out of this pain doesn't arise a festering wound, which then, uh, because it is inflamed, becomes literally pandemonium for our heart. If we fail to address it, and we still have a bit of time, yes, there is significantly... Um, how should we put this? A lot of the stuff which is about to happen economically is already ingrained and embedded, but it's also anticipated by the market. Um, I would trust uh, the Western societies to be able to, now that their thoughts 
have been crystallized, but they also equalize their approach, meaning refrain from ideological pursuit of uh, stupendously unhelpful, unpractical aims and objectives. That may take a few months to trickle down, but I think um, the issue of supporting Ukraine with a few billion, which I'm sorry, for every one of us, a billion is unfathomably large, but still, in terms of budgeting of our highly integrated, technologically advanced and capital-rich societies, all in total, those few billions invested in Ukraine's defense of freedom are A, a mere drop in the bucket, and B, the most important drops there are. They are the tonic which we need to revive the Western soul. And actually, I think at this point, it's worthwhile noting as well. I don't know if you if you stopped speaking or, or, cut, or got cut off. Uh, but no, I, was, be... I was done. Oh, very good. Then I didn't cut you off. Thank God. Um, I just want to know that it's it's worthwhile noting as well that re- the rebuilding of Ukraine would on, would obviously be uh, somewhat of an economic boon for the rest of Europe as well, right? Especially nearby countries such as Poland and Germany and so on. So it's not all quite black and white. Oh, on the contrary, I think the the integration of Ukraine, the, the tight integration of Ukraine into Western capital flows. Uh, and Ukraine, with its large, uh, well-equipped population, its fantastic, um, say, terms of trade, competitive advantage in both technology as well as labor cost, um, and its available population for both high-precision manufacturing as well as very high-quality production as such, and uh, is is uh, immeasurable uh, as a say, yeah, core growth factor for Europe in the coming years. And uh, if you want to, so to say, reintegrate uh, production, which people have um, unfortunately been so stupid as to convey over to China for the mere expediency of a seemingly large retail market, um, failing to understand the concept of what uh, lying low in the tall grass means for the Chinese uh, military economics. Um, I think Ukraine is, in that regard, a gift given to the Western world, because it's restructuring, it's integration, it's competitive force, and it's practicality, and therefore it's requirements for the West to adapt to a higher speed and higher frequency of decision-making will just add to the benefit it creates by means of its restructuring to be undertaken. And reintegrating production in, and in, into the supply chain closer to the markets in Europe by building out those spaces in Eastern Slovakia, the massive uh, uh, opportunity in Romania, refurbishing and uh, integrating the poorest country in Europe, Moldavia, and uh, Ukraine will be exceptional to Europe. I think it is one of the most magnificent opportunities Europe has had since the Second World War. Yes, exactly, Axel. Um, Thank you for putting it much better than I could have at this point in the day. You should ask Troy. What should I ask Troy? Hi, Troy. I'm asking you. Hey, everybody. Uh, thank you for asking me, actually. I was just going to say that uh, I in World War II that said anything we can actually do, we can afford. So, uh, excuse my son for a moment. Um, just parking, boy. Um, so, yeah, we can do it. And if you listen to the, the, the convenient, the, the very nice confluence of, of uh, words in this space, in the Walter Report and in the Biden administration, 
he's using terms like arsenal of democracy. We are committing ourselves to this project regardless of any domestic. Troy, Troy, did he listen to us? Yes. I don't don't know. I'm sure he's got. We've been preaching the arsenal of democracy since weeks. I, it's a catchy term. It's 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 you know it's in the ether now, and we should keep it that way because that's exactly you know what we are. The Western Coalition is the arsenal of democracy, and you know we've had that position since World War II, and we're not about to give it up. Yesterday, the Federal Reserve raised interest rates a full half percent, so usually they do it in increments of about a tenth of a point. So they are working quickly to get inflation in check. So there's you know domestically business owners and. And people that like to use money and spend money to make money, it's it's not necessarily great for them because the money supply tightens. But that's exactly what we need. We got a lot of real money in the system. We had a lot of, uh, I don't know if you call it quantitative easements, but a lot of uh, stimuluses to keep the people and the economy afloat during the pandemic. And we also got a whole lot of fake money in the form of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies crowding the space and leaking into the you know, global economic space. So at the same time, if you look, you know, your stocks might be not your American stocks, your global stocks might not be doing so well. You might be looking at two, three, four or five percentage point losses. But if you're in Bitcoin, you're looking at like 30, 40 percent losses. So at least you're not silly enough to do that kind of thing. So the point was, yeah, we're going to do whatever we can to afford it. And remember, most of the stuff so far is is off the shelf. So, you know, now that Raytheon and Northrop Grumman and all their 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 missile stocks are getting low, they're going to go have to go back to work and, and make a bunch. So that's going to be good for the component suppliers. That's going to be good for the employees. That's going to be, you know, good. I think that sector is complete. And that's notwithstanding any black swan events, you know, in the meantime. Luckily, China is up against their own financial crisis. So there's not too much room for any funny business. They're trying to keep, you know, their currency sound as well so it's definitely it's definitely a factor in this conflict but i don't see us going anywhere anytime at all all righty um just very briefly marek jingo if you don't have a question at the moment could you uh, switch down because we have a lot of uh, additional requests coming up you can always cycle back up if you uh, then send us a request after that's okay but uh, if you thank you oh sorry um, sorry same okay. not a problem uh, and we'll call upon you again as soon as we're ready and uh, Imperius, if you could uh, cycle accordingly, please. Uh, sorry, who's next? Carl is next, and then Sabrit, then uh, Chad and MP. Yeah, uh, before I talk about what I, what I came to, just to stay on the topic, uh, I agree that you know the support of Ukraine, whether financially or militarily, isn't going to be impacted by um, inflation in the short term. You know, in the mid to long term, you, you know, uh, who knows uh, if populations become resentful of the war and uh, blaming it for uh, the inflation. That's a possibility. And of course, you know, some politicians will be quick to just uh, bl- blame uh, inflation on Putin instead of uh, yeah, yeah, how many years of other factors. But even though they'll do that, so that's not, the, you know, there's a far bigger narrative of, you know, commitment and continued commitment to uh, supporting Ukraine than there is of, you know, scapegoating the um, inflation on the war. You know, and and in the US, that's on both sides of the house. So, you know, unless as we uh, come up to the midterms, if suddenly we see a bunch of uh, uh, politicians uh, campaigning uh, on the idea of blaming inflation, on the war, you know, that would make a lot of resentment, but I really don't see that happening. Um, so that I, I think, uh, 
Ukraine's uh, support from the West uh, is probably just going to get more and more and more, you know, so uh, maybe more um, financially, military in some ways. But uh, I think the solidarity will just continue to get um, uh, was reinforced, right? Uh, you know, the, the, you know, the, the alignment is kind of more uh, uh, every day, I, I'd say. You know, you know, more countries are coming to more in alignment, uh, being willing to voice their support more, uh, be willing to, you, you know, um, do things behind the scenes more and do things out in public more. Um, but uh, I, since there are a lot of hands, I'll come back later for, for my other thing because it's not really time. That's appreciated. Thank you, Carl. Righty ho. Uh, the next one then would be Sir Britt, I take it. Good evening, Axel. Uh, Mike Jack. Good evening. Loud and clear. Good stuff. Good stuff. Um, I hope everyone's well. Uh, yeah, I just kind of want to forward this point. Um, certainly, I think from the UK perspective, it's no question of our unwavering support for Ukraine and continued unwavering support. I mean, the past sort of couple of weeks alone from the UK, you know, we've seen a massive deployment of, you know, 8,000 soldiers, tanks, armoured vehicles, aircraft, artillery systems all over Eastern Europe. We've seen hundreds of millions of pounds more in aid going to Ukraine and um, in the uh, speech that Boris Johnson gave to the Ukrainian parliament, which, by the way, I want to absolutely thank Ukraine uh, for that privilege, you know, for the UK to be the first major sort of world leader to, to speak to the Ukrainian parliament since the Russian invasion was a huge honour. And I felt a huge amount of pride, not just for Ukraine, but for the UK in, in that moment. I think it was a real sentiment of a, of the bond that's been built between the UK and Ukraine over the past um, 70 days, whatever it is now. Uh, but yeah, I, I think, um, and ending that speech as well, you know, the, the Boris said, um, the UK will do everything we can. And I think that is an absolute statement. I think the UK will continue to do everything we can um, to support Ukraine. I don't think the economic worries, which definitely are a worry, you know, um, but I don't think it will come close to what the UK will continue to offer Ukraine and what the UK will continue to do. I think, I think, um, as Boris put it, you know, we will continue to do everything we possibly can to ensure that uh, Ukraine wins. So, yeah. Much appreciated. We've heard uh, of discussion earlier, maybe, so Bridget, you can tell us a bit more about it, or if you know, or uh, at least give us some guidance as to how the British public is actually perceiving this, that um, as a consequence of discussions with uh, Prime Minister Johnson, um, the Ukrainian armed forces are, have requested, respectively, uh, 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 say, discussing longer-range weapons to be delivered to Ukraine. So, Brett, hello. Mic check. Does everybody, anybody hear me? Or Yeah, yes. loud, loud and clear. Oh, that's a lie. Uh, so, Brett, I don't know. Did, did you hear my question? Um, maybe an audio issue. I'm not sure. All right, maybe we can park the question and if and when he is... Uh, uh, he, if, he, if and when he can hear us well again, then we can address that. I see a wave from 30 Mike Mike. Uh, it seems that the question is pertaining to him as well. Uh, 30 Mike Mike, you want to quickly chat in? Yeah. yeah. Would you, 30 Mike Mike, would you want to have a word about this? Is it just me or is nobody hearing us? I mean, we, we have been having issues uh, with the Twitter space um, recently. So, um, Absolutely. We, we hear you. I'm delighted. Thank you, Mika. 
Uh, okay, we have Sir Brit back, and he has his hand up. So, uh, you want to have a Sir Brit? You want to uh, address the question which I posed, or shall I repeat the question? Yeah, sorry. Um, after uh, I spoke, that went completely dead for me. I don't know if you guys even heard me. Um, we we heard what you said. Oh, sorry, Walter, you didn't hear him. Yeah, I'm, it's like weird connection issues, but it's okay. Just proceed. I'm monitoring. Separate. So, feel free to repeat. Um, okay, um, I'll go ahead. Uh, just to make sure, can you hear me now? Very well. Okay, um, so I'll just kind of go over. Apologies yes. if you did hear me. I'll just I'll just repeat myself. Um, but essentially, yeah, what I was driving at was that um, from the UK, um, we will kind of continue to do everything we can um, from the. Um, from the recent deployment of um, 8,000 British troops along with uh, British tanks, um, armoured assault vehicles, aircraft, artillery systems all over Eastern Europe, uh, from the additional hundreds of millions of pounds of support, uh, 300 million, I think, to be exact, and the further sanctions against Russia. And, you know, um, Boris uh, giving his speech to the Ukrainian parliament. Um, and I, I mentioned that there was, you know, a huge privilege for Ukraine to grant uh, the UK, and it, you know, really kind of cements the the friendship between our two nations that's kind of, you know, arisen since the start of this. And Boris really kind of summed it up when he, you know, kind of looked directly at Ukraine and just said, the UK will do everything we can. And I think that's been the attitude since the start from the UK, and I think that will continue. I don't think the economic hardships that are to come, and they will be hardships. I'm, I'm sure there will be difficulties. You know, the, in the UK now, there's like the rise in living cost is a worry. But, um, you know, Axel mentioned earlier, like the difference sort of between, you know, urgency and important. And this is, you know, the economic issues are important. But what's going on in Ukraine is an urgent issue. And I think for the UK, we will see nothing but more of growing support. Um, there's certainly no indication that I've seen um, from from the mod of any support um, that will be sort of reduced because of the economic um, worries that lie ahead, you know. So I think just from the UK uh, perspective, you know, we will continue to do absolutely everything we can and there won't be any question to that. Much appreciated and thank you. Right, uh, I think if you want to stay with us for a little while, I think we're, there are going to be a number of questions which may be, um, say, rolling towards both you and us, if you like. Um, let me bring up uh, a few more of our guests. And 30 Mike, Mike, do you want to say something? Uh, yes, hi. Um, I would just like to yield my time to Chad. I believe he had his hand up first, please, and then I'll circle back. Sure. Okay. Chad. Uh, yeah. Hi. Can you hear me okay? Loud and clear. Okay. Uh, just as far as inflation and uh, recession goes, uh, here in the U.S., the DOD uh, pretty much has bottomless pockets. And they're not really even audited uh, for security reasons. Uh, and because of that, I was just going to say uh, there's no worries there on our end. I agree with you on this one. Uh, it was more about uh, Europe in that regard. The DOD definitely has substantial funding. I completely agree. Oh, I'm sorry. I missed that part. Uh, that's no, all. No, 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 it's okay. I was, I, I'm with you. I think that uh, America has... Um, has the right approach to military and defense spending. Okay, that's all. Thank you. All right, touch Mike, Mike, and then MP after, and then Ben. Oh, yes, hi, uh, guys So and ladies. So this evening, uh, in just over four hours, we're going to be joined with Colonel Vindman, among other 
of our usual uh, panel and some extra uh, military experts. My question is, um, I believe Yehuda referred to a protocol that may be laid out uh, pertaining to how we can message our, our questions or comments as the audience. And additionally, would you like us as the audience to do anything to uh, boost the signal and get the word out over um, the airwaves here in various formats? Okay. Thanks and Slava Ukraini. Yeah, Mikko, by the way. So I was a little bit surprised to Alex, uh, Axel's what you said about the uh, interest rates going up and no effect because I have a huge effect cash flow wise. You know, you know, I have a lot of leverage, interest rates goes up and uh, it's going to be a big issue to be honest. They do or they don't. And I can tell you why because currently the I, amount I have, of cash. I have a big issue. I have a big issue. I'm a very solidary, you know, with Ukraine. I, I donate money, etc. But it's going to be a big issue for me as well. That I understand. But then again, uh, companies obviously have an issue with this. What I was trying to allude to is that, A, there is a substantial amount of liquidity in the market, which if, um, and that's, yes, there is massive amount of debt, and obviously certain amount of debt will become significantly more expensive and all that. We're fine. What I'm saying is we have a massive amount of an overhang of liquidity currently in the markets, specifically also in Europe, and that liquidity is unutilized. Hey, hey, Axel, at what cost? I didn't understand, sorry? At what cost you have this liquidity? You, you, <sighs> need, you, need, to, you need to pay for it. Uh, at times, you currently still have to pay for it. You actually have to pay for the pleasure of holding your liquidity, absolutely. Yeah, exactly, but, exactly. Which also means that you're not gaining any yield, and therefore it's a dysfunctional capital market at this point in time. So the, the excess liquidity does not find sufficient amount of investment capacity in Europe, and that's a big issue. Mm, okay. Let's Currently, short-term short-term investments, short-term sorry, short-term liquidity on German bank accounts. I would have to check the first no, quarter I don't, report. No, I, I don't have any source, but I said you know if U.S. interest rates goes up, it has a huge effect on me as well. I'm sorry to hear that, but then again, I think it will, will have the same effect on me too. I'm quite sure about it. Uh, I think so as well. Ben. Hi. Uh, so following Spring's comment, I want to check the, um, what Macron just said and uh, what it implied. Uh, I have done some forensic accounting in my life, but nothing quite as messy as this. And all I can say is that he's going to increase the amount of money going somewhere but i'm not even sure all of the money he's talking about is going to go to ukraine uh because in a literally page long uh declaration he managed to bring in the president of senegal into the mix um who i'm sure is a delightful chap but i don't see how it regards ukraine and the result is and i couldn't figure out what it meant and I have uh, looked around in the press if there was any indication of what it meant, and no one knows. So, uh, yeah, there is no way of knowing how much is going where. I'm sorry. All righty. Thank you, Ben. Um, DP, DP, you have your hand up. Is it Don Pietro? 
Hi there. Thanks for having me. I just wanted to make a quick comment on uh, interest rates in the debt markets. So uh, right now we have uh, two things happening which are actually really, really bad for uh, our debt markets and bond markets, which we're seeing the Japanese yen break down. And uh, they've decided to try and cap their interest rates. So when they try and cap their short-term interest rates, they're using the yen to try and cap that. And when that cap does break, the whole financial system will probably go with it because this is something that's been uh, really, really dependent and a steady for many years or since 2008 plus where the companies have had low borrowing rates. Right now, when they cap those rates, but the yen goes lower or goes, I should say, breaks down, becomes less valuable to the dollar. They can no longer buy corporate debt or any bonds to the extent they were before because they were a very large holder of foreign reserves and big buyer with the with the yen breaking down to the dollar then they can buy less which is then pushing up interest rates even farther so if you look at the interest rates in the bond market it's just a disaster right now and uh the same goes with what's happening in europe the euro is also broken down and the strong dollar is basically killing everything so we're stuck in this conundrum of high high inflation but other currencies just breaking down in relative terms of the dollar so I want to see what your comments are on that. Yeah, I mean, that, that is the danger that uh, a more, um, should I say, more precarious environment and currencies uh, um, at risk will um, have a significant deeper dive. Um, the essential devaluation in Egypt, which happened right at the beginning of this um, phase of the invasion, was just testament to this. And you can see a lot more of it. And the combination of both uh, the pandemic's impact as well as the preceding uh, and still continuing qu uh, quantitative easing at, it, uh, at infinity um, simply fuels all of this. Uh, I think we will see a lot of other smaller economies um, being severely impacted. But it's not the small economies that we even really bother to uh, look at. It's those of Japan, Europe, and other places and such that really control the debt markets and uh, the small economies like you know are going to be affected in inversely much worse than others but if we do see yes no. the breakdown sorry yes and no i agree with you yeah. yes they don't matter for the debt markets but the problem is if one of them implodes and uh, creates yet another large crisis this trickles down as a security risk and requires substantial more com uh, say commitment by the us and that then in itself becomes unmanageable. Yeah, and that's, that's where, where the main markets are what matters because the other ones are just secondary. And if we if we do see the yen break down or they have to cap, take their, their peg for their interest rates off, we're going to see some interesting stuff happen within the bond markets, which will then, you know, truly, it's uh, uncharted territory at this point. Well, is it uncharted? Because uh, German hyperinflation teaches you quite literally what not to do if you remember yes um i, I would say so but uh in saying that we're also dealing with a lot of you know supply chain problems which are much more intrinsic to uh where we're in these troubles along with really bad investment going to you know right now we're in we're in this oil crisis not because of russia this was coming here regardless russia just expedited i live in the, in the probably the second largest oil reserves in the world and we saw no investment happen since 2013 and these are plants that produce 200 to 500,000 barrels a day um everything went to the green energy markets 
and there's your biggest problem is non-performing exactly because they they are shall we say they are unsanctioned unsupported and unsubsidized um output is not necessarily as helpful as one would wish it to be so you know we can look at the fertilizer markets right now i was just sitting with one of my guys who uh work is high up with agrium in Canada here, we had, we sit on the largest potash. We supply 95% of the potash in the world. And uh, we were talking about things. And because it's a natural gas intensive process of producing the phosphate and the potash, everything has moved out of the countries which produced those products. So France had tons of production years ago. They shut them all down. Everything's been shut down because of the green energy taxes and gone over to countries where they have no, uh, basically no regulation. Yeah, I take your point. Um, if you want to stick around for a little while, because I think this will boil over further. Uh, we have another four minutes until the language learner update. We're going to cycle them up as well. Uh, Mika, and then Cajun, and then Slava. Thank you. Yeah, let's give it to Slava. I was more like for a cash flow, actually. Okay, Slava. <laughs> uh, thank you, thank you. Uh, I just uh, wanted a bit, uh, quick reply to Marek. Um, and share share my personal uh, story. Uh, so I raised uh, I raised um, sorry sorry. Um, so there is there is was time before mobile phones, and I loved television. And I I raised on the Polish television. I loved love Polish television. So I love uh, po Polish language. Polski. Yanzik Yalubi. And I, uh, this time, while I raised, uh, no one put in my, put in my head uh, to hate someone. Even though I know history uh, of conflicts uh, between Polish, uh, Ukrainian, we all have history uh, not so good. But uh, living the, the, here on the west of Ukraine, I have no hate, no hate on the law. And in, looking in parallel to the east, where they uh, love Russian television, they hate, they hate everything. They hate everything that not, uh, um, that, that not, um, live in the uh, fake reality. So I see here only law. So I really <laughs> appreciate uh, um, this time, this space in absolutely um, great, great time. I, I and thank you, thank you everyone who, who helps. Uh, this um, help is absolutely uh, important and um, appreciated. So thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm done. Thank you very much, much appreciated. And uh, we're definitely on the same page. Cajun, how's my favorite uh, purveyor of good taste and uh, the culture of Louisiana? Oh, it's a very good day today. It's a beautiful day outside. I wish I was in Louisiana, but uh, such is the exile life. Um, anyway, I just wanted to make a... a, a a comment you're gonna um we're gonna see a lot of people draw um 
uh, and DP, please don't take this as any criticism of anything that you said, because it's not, uh, who are going to look at the, the risk to their economies, the damage to their economies, and blame it on uh, the war in Ukraine, um, and uh, try to cast aspersions in that, di- in, direction, in that direction to deflect from the failings of their own economic policies. I nearly fell out of my chair laughing when uh, Axel said, you know, uh, German uh, hyperinflation is a good indication of what not to do. And uh, as uh, America and, and many other uh, uh, countries uh, dangerously flirt with the same policies that got uh, uh, Germany and its hyperinflationary situation in the, in the 1920s, but I don't want to get into that either. And then conversely, we're going to see similar people. We're going to see well, we're going to see other people who want to claim credit for a victory in Ukraine um, because the Ukrainians are are what most people thought it was impossible 67 days ago actually looked like they're going to win. And many of us here believe are going to win this war. Um, there, there's a saying, uh, success has many fathers, but failure is an orphan. So now that as most of the world starts to get the clue that the Russians could actually lose this, there's going to be a lot of people who want to jump on the bandwagon for credit for what they've done and what, uh, you know, how they helped Ukraine win the war. And, and it's, it's in, in my mind, and I think it should be in everybody else's mind, the people who won, who are going to win this are going to be the Ukrainian people. It's not going to be anybody else. It's not our sons. It's not our brothers. It's not our sisters who are fighting this fight. It's Ukrainians who are fighting this fight. And we're going to see political um, um, advantage being attempted to be taken by various people. Sometimes they'll argue both sides of the same uh, argument. You know, the Ukrainian war is responsible for why the economy is bad and the Ukrainians are succeeding because we help them. You're going to see the same people make the same argument, whatever happens to be convenient for them at the time. But the, the, the thing is, is just to stay focused on um, what's important, Ukrainian victory here, not get uh, distracted by uh, the politics of any one country or another. And uh, as uh, Warren Buffett, a famous investor from America, has, a, has one of his little country sayings would say, when the tide goes out, you find out who's skinny dipping. So if we have some economic disruption due to this uh, uh, war in Ukraine, we may find out some countries who've been skinny dipping and it's going to be embarrassing for them. But that's how uh, that's how economics works on a large scale. Uh, it's their responsibility of the governments of their uh, uh, their governments to run their economies in such a way that they can weather these type things. So that's uh basically what I wanted to say in a nutshell. And again, thanks for the space. Thank you very much. Um, and uh, DP, if you want to have a quick answer to this, that's great. But then we are overdue for two minutes for language learner to do his update. So please. Hey, Cajun. Thank you. And guys, thanks for having me back here. Um, yeah, thanks for your, your point there. And I do agree very much that there's going to be lots of deflection and finger pointing and, you know, Ukraine this, Ukraine that. What we're facing here especially the supply chain crisis we have is a lack of materials and raw goods. Something that's been affected for us for, you know, this has been bad policy since the 1990s. Um, I myself developed natural resources. We just, right now I'm doing a potash uh, deal in Utah. The problem we have is we can't get anything built in our back. Germany right now has tons of gas. They just didn't want to use it. They want someone else's backyard and rather do it there. And 
we're we've had chronic non-investment in all forms of raw goods whether it's copper lithium is one you just you name it it's it's been chronic misinvestment because we cannot do it where we have secure supply so now we're paying the you know after effects of that when everybody was chasing these high return companies like netflix or go look at shopify grab those charts and they're cliffhangers right now because they're intrinsically worthless they didn't make money they just had high growth and we're going to see a big change in the economies because of it and if we don't decide to start using our own resources well things aren't going to be very good and in in the u.s they're going to get affected severely also especially in the real estate market that's going to come to a screeching halt we're already starting to see that also i own a real estate brokerage and in toronto for example we have month over month houses being down over 30 percent just because people can't get the financing anymore and that just runs into a negative feedback loop where it's not fun anyhow you guys uh thanks for the time and uh we'll I, later. I don't disagree with this component at all on the contrary this is the kind of data we're all looking at that there has been a significant uh, misdirection of investment into um what do you would call highfalutin super attractive uh snake oil sorry yeah. so, D, so DP, 100%, 100%. dp very uh very much appreciate your comments you, you know uh being from south louisiana that is uh has a long history in the oil business uh understood 100 percent. there's a big disconnect between economic reality and economic fantasy and uh you got to pay the piper one day and some of that's coming home to roost sooner rather than later 100 percent, and we've been you know, kicking the can down the road by lowering interest rates and to the point where we got to zero. Now you can't kick the can any further. Uh, Europe's been negative rates, you know, and our real rates negative for a long time in North America also. And these, uh, you know, just lead to really, really, really bad investments at the end of the day with no intrinsic value. But, uh, I mean, I can bring uh, the crypto roll up right now. Hey, DP, I got some NFTs to sell you. Yeah, give her. Uh, ask the guy who uh, bought uh, what was it the the founder of Twitter's NFT who could get what two hundred thirty bucks for it, and he, he paid a million bucks for it. <laughs> there, uh, it's uh, it's gonna it's going to be uh, an interesting go here when all the froth comes off, and uh, we look back and see what's actually real assets and what's fake assets. And yeah, I know for sure with Louisiana, you you know the oil patch very well, and uh, the the non investment and the missteps in policy, like for example being out in Alberta, Canada, where we have massive oil reserves and gas reserves the u.s cancels a pipeline that could literally fuel you guys i don't just makes no sense at all but uh, that's another story all righty uh we don't disagree you should keep up the discussion because it's one of the more important ones on the longer term and i'm sure we can find some more time also uh, over the weekend when we have more discussions on energy and finance it seems that from time to time each saturday and sunday we have some uh so to say U.S. early morning or um, European afternoon discussions here with people which pertain to a little bit of, um, say, somber remembrance of economic facts. So I shall invite you, if your weekend gives for one or the other hour or for a few minutes of your precious time, and I know everybody has to keep their sanity in check and do something real, say, so go out into the woods, go out into the gardens, do something with the family and the dogs and whatnot. But still, if you have a moment, you will find out that uh, European afternoons uh, and U.S. mornings on the weekend are actually quite uh, commensurately interesting here on this space. So, and with that, on that happy note, let me hand you over to 
language learner who will provide us with a bit of an update as to what has happened along the line of contact. Language, welcome. Hi, thank you. Yeah. So as in general, because we don't want this to be the language learner show, um, if there's specific regions that you're interested in or specific facets, including things I may have missed, please always feel free. Click that button in the lower left-hand corner. Come on up. We'll talk about it. Shoot me a direct message. My DMs are always open. Um, just don't be a prick. Send me information I don't know. Tell me I'm wrong. I'm happy to be proven wrong. I got proven wrong earlier today. Um, I misjudged where uh, an artillery system was. Mayor culpa. Um, but let's run through some of the stuff that's happened in the last 24 hours. We're going to start with a general overview. Did you just say you missed and... one artillery system? Uh, yeah. I, uh, a whole? Yeah. I mean, long? Yeah. So, you know, I might as well just give it up at this point. Oh, yeah. Well, may maybe two. Maybe two. Um, <laughs> yeah, was, uh, Keep going. So, anyway, we've got uh, – we'll run through the general overview, what happened today. Then I'll run through some of just the big talking points of the last couple days. And then we'll run through what the situation looks like on the ground. Now, there's been – it's been pretty sedentary, frankly. There's been some advancements in some positions. But, as always, I encourage you – Pull up a map. Google Map works great. Google Earth Pro, which is free. You can get it on your computer. works even better because it will let you see things like elevation. And beyond that, um, if you go to my profile, the top pin post, there's like 12 maps there. You can pick and choose whichever one you want to use. I personally don't care, but it helps. Otherwise, I'm going to throw a lot of names and words at you, and I would personally be unable to follow them if I was just staring at my phone. So I think that's enough time. Uh, let's get down into it. So here's an update as of 6 p.m. Uh, today, local Ukrainian time. So that would be just on the order of about, um, you know, three, four hours ago. 71st day of uh, the invasion against Ukraine continues. Um, Russia continues to conduct full-scale armed aggression, um, specifically offensive operations in the east. Um, they're trying to, their goal appears to be establish full control over the territory of Donetsk and Luhansk oblasts and maintain the land corridor between this region. And then the Donbass, as we'll just call from here on out, all the way down to Crimea. That's their goal. They're not doing too good at it. Um, additionally, way further to the west in Transnistria, the Russians are provoking tensions. Um, they've been doing a lot of maneuvers, taking measures to replenish ammo and fuel and, you know, make entrenchments. I'm not personally expecting anything to happen from there. But, you know, if you have a couple thousand troops on your borders that it'd be stupid if they invaded, but they might do it. You still have to commit forces there. And every soldier that's standing on the Ukrainian border, staring across the lines, not doing anything is one less Ukrainian soldier that's actively participating in the combat to the East. And so these are fixing operations. There's also some stuff going on in Belarus. You might hear about this is an annual military drill. And if the Belarusian army wasn't going in early war, when the Russians were all but holding a gun to their heads, they're sure as hell not going in now by themselves. Uh, in um, some of the areas that Russia currently controls. Uh, they are continuing to steal products of uh, agriculture, specifically grain, hundreds of thousands of tons. Um, it's, there's a number of reasons why they're doing A, might just be theft. B, they're turning that into, oh, well, there's a humanitarian catastrophe. No one has food. We have seen in a number of cases uh, where what's reported is when Russians come into your town, they basically loot as many of the stores as they can themselves for their own needs. Everything else they kind of bring to a collection point. And then you can go and get food from there, but you have to do a little song and dance for the camera about how the Russians came and saved you from the evil Nazis. So there's a political element to that as well. Uh, there continues to be 
uh, large missile strikes on Ukrainian rail infrastructure, as well as rail supporting infrastructure, specifically electronic power generation all the way up to the northwest in the Transcarpathian Mountains. Uh, the working theory there is they want to interdict and slow down uh, Ukrainian rail systems because not just it's you know, to be a jerk to all the civilians trying to leave, but more importantly, to stop the Western arms and material from coming in. Because Poland's donating 200 tanks, you can't really drive those all the way from Lviv to Kharkiv. It, it would take a while. So damaging and degrading rail infrastructure, we've seen that be a continued focus of Russian forces for the war, and even more so in the last few days as the amount of Western aid gets ramped up. Um, so there continues to be mortar and artillery fire along almost the entire line of contact. There's been very few minimal offensives. However, to the southeast of the city of Kharkiv, near the city of Stari Saltiv, which is right along that river, um, you should see it, uh, depending on which map you're looking at, it's almost due southeast of, uh, of the city. Russian forces were forced to pull back there. It's unclear who's in control of the town. It's right next to a bridge that was blown up um, a little while ago. Uh, but, but, yeah, it's over a fairly major river. It's not something you're going to be able to just ford. The town to the south of it, Molodova, not Moldova, uh, was reported as being at least occupied by Ukrainian forces now. Whether they have full control of the area, the general staff of Ukraine was playing a little fast and loose with that. But it does continue to show Ukrainian forces are pushing Russian forces back towards the Russian border, um, at the very least to the uh, Seversky Donetsk River or, uh, and beyond. Having those natural barriers will allow not only for the relief of all the artillery that's been pounding Kharkiv into the ground for the past few months, but it'll also allow all of the units, and there are many there, uh, to choose if they want to go further south and attack the Russians from the backside. Um, Stary Saltiv, though, continues to be uh, a question mark. That's S-T-A-R-Y-I-S-A-L-T-I-V. If anybody has more information on that, I'd always love to get it. Let's see. Uh, beyond that, um, there continues to – so let's, we can talk a little about combat losses. Uh, Russia's been taking a lot. Uh, the one thing that we haven't seen, or at least I haven't seen, and I'm actually trying to keep an eye out for it, is effective Russian combat medicine, not just medics but also combat field hospitals, um, triage, casualty collection points. I haven't seen a lot of evidence of that, certainly compared to what we're seeing from the Russian side. Uh, there is reports, though, that uh, they are trying to, because of large combat losses and casualties, so a wounded soldier, frankly, takes a lot more uh, work than a dead soldier, because one, you can throw in a ditch, as the Russians have been doing, but one, you have to take care of, and you have to feed, and you have to give them a bet. They haven't been doing a good job at that. So they've been increasing their medical support of troops, trying to use civilian medical institutions, so hospitals in the Kharkiv region. They actually built a hospital um, in Kupyansk City uh, at the hospital. They basically took over a large section of it, said, hey, civilians, don't have a heart attack. This is our hospital now. We need it for uh, casualty care. Uh, it'd be interesting if we get more videos out of that because there's a tremendous logistical load that goes into taking care of wounded soldiers, um, and we just – haven't seen Russia able to manifest even basic logistics, much less medical logistics. In Donetsk, uh, the Russian forces have continuously tried to capture Papazna and Rubizna. These are cities to the southeast and northeast of that little pocket, if you will. Uh, both sides have just been absolute slaughters for Russian forces. The same uh, gentleman who 
is a nominally a DPR LPR volunteer. And I had read his account a couple times here about the struggles the Russians took when they were trying to go into Rubizna. In Popozna, it's just as bad. Uh, it's summarized briefly, it's mostly these volunteers, quote unquote, a lot of these are forcibly mobilized conscripts, DPR, LPR guys uh, who have been given essentially no training, no equipment, and they don't have an, any chance at the result. In Papazna, they were being guided along by a bunch of Wagner guys. The Wagner group is a Russian mercenary organization that works essentially hand in hand with the Russian government. Um, they are not so much door kickers, you know, as much as they pretend they want to be SEAL Team 6 or whatever. They're better at going into places in Africa, mobilizing the local population and dealing with these then lowly equipped, poorly trained uh, units in pursuit of Russian interests, right? They've been doing that here too. However, as the guy says, it doesn't matter whether, you know, two months ago you were a miner, you know, a coal miner somewhere in eastern Ukraine, or you've been fighting in Africa for five years. The second you hit this battlefield, it doesn't matter. You just die anyway, especially because what the Ukrainians have been doing is a very effective defense in depth. They've been using a lot of concrete fortifications, apparently. And if his report is to be believed, uh, they'll attack, the Russians will attack, and if they are even able to break through the defenses or get close enough to these firing positions, the Ukrainians essentially shelter down and then call in artillery fire in the area between their position and the others. And, us, you know, once the artillery fire subsides, they lift what he's referring to as concrete shutters up. I don't know exactly what he means by that. And then they just resume firing. So it's been a brutal, brutal grind. Um, you, Russians have also been using a tremendous amount of ammunition, uh, in the area, and there's issues about how much ammunition people actually have now. We've seen more and more reports of uh, and pictures of Russian guard posts or Russian-affiliated forces guard posts in that region being issued old bolt-action rifles. Um, I'm not one to say, oh, well, this gun's better than that gun, but from a very general perspective, if I have a bolt-action rifle and, you, and five rounds and you have a machine gun with a couple hundred rounds, I'm probably going to lose that fight. So there's there seems to be uh, degradation in the Russian ability to supply their Ford units with just about anything except artillery shells. The reports are that the Russian trucks basically show up, they dump a bunch of artillery shells, they take a bunch of casualties, and that's all they do now. Um, there's not really a tremendous amount of movement by these uh, vehicles, at least in the eastern region of the Donbass. However, we've also seen a number of Russian forces that have uh, retreated fully back into the territory of the Russian Federation because they've taken substantial combat loss to the point they are no longer combat effective. Uh, the 4th Tank Division of the 1st Tank Army, which, is, which was fighting around Izium, and another VDV division um, was pulled back. There's been a couple more, um, but we're seeing photos of them just saying, hey, like, we can't fight anymore. We don't have you know, anywhere close to what we need to. And the fact that especially given the Russian uh, predilection for just throwing things at the wall until they stick. If they're saying, hey, we can't do this anymore, it means they've got them pretty messed up. Uh, beyond that, in the southwest near Kherson, there's reports that four villages have been recaptured by Ukrainian forces. They're playing a little fast and loose with exactly where those are, but uh, videos from the ground seem to indicate it's to the northwest of Kherson city, uh, a little further northwest of Chornobaika, which has been continuously shelled by Ukrainians every time the Russians put things there. And as a result, you're seeing more pressure applied on the city 
The big question mark is what's happening to the northeast of the city. There's a large area that's under some dubious Russian control. In reality, they basically control the areas along the main highways. Everything else there is a very large question mark. But as we continue to see Ukrainian forces push against Russians down there, um, it'll be very interesting if they have enough forces, the Russians do, to both hold this extended position and defend the area around the city or if they're going to pull stuff back. Um, so we'll take a bit of a quick pause there, see if there's any questions from the audience, and then we can dive more into some of the specific regions as well. Language, uh, uh, I got a question regarding south of uh, southwest of Izum. Um, are we seeing any more progress to Baron Cove, or is that just kind of inching along, crawling along like we were seeing everywhere else? It's been pretty well stimmied. So the town we keep talking about, and I'm sure if you've been here or even if you haven't, you've heard about it. It's called Izium. That's I-Z-Y-U-M or I-Z-I-U-M, depending on how you want to spell it. The main thrust of the Russian forces there is along these two highways. Uh, to the southeast of Izium, there's the twin towns of Sloviansk and Kramatorsk. Before the war, population of about a quarter million. Now a lot of people have been evacuated, but they're very heavily defended. Russian forces looked like they were initially trying to sprint down to those cities. They haven't done very well. Um, Ukrainian forces have very effective uh, fighting positions in this sort of wooded, hilly area that um, makes the road into a valley, really. And Russians have just gotten killed every time they pushed. And the Russians aren't stupid as much as we'd wish they were incapable of learning. They said, well, along the supply line to these two towns, there's another town a little further to the northwest that's much smaller, population about 10,000, called Barvinkov. They were pushing down through there. The terrain that they were pushing through to get there, where we saw a number of uh, Russian captured towns, was predominantly flatlands, fields with very similar geography. It's all at like 600 feet above sea level, and then it dips down a bit as you get into the town. However, in the last mile or two, it becomes more woods and hills. However, it seems that most of the Ukraine forces decided, well, we could throw all our forces into fighting and dying in these small villages of 100, 200 people that only have a bunch of wooden buildings, a few more modern structures while the Russians have tanks and artillery, or we can pull back and hit them as they come in. And they fought a fighting retreat. However, especially around some of the towns closer now, um, Dovenke to the east, uh, there's a few more whose names escape me to the southwest towards Barvinkov. The Russian offensive has essentially stalled. There's been no major progress there in at least the last 72 hours. Um, hopefully that kind of answers the question there. I think we may have lost Craig, unfortunately. Um, hopefully we'll get him back up here. I'm, but, getting, I'm yeah, getting him. Yeah. Um, and then a question from Cajun Exile. Any news about the second Taman guards? I don't know who that is or where they are. You'll have to be. Um, is, is that the second Taman guards are the ones who lost the T90M? Oh well, uh, I bet they're hurting on that. So tanks do matter. Um, the T90M is one of Russia's most modern tanks that actually exists, as opposed to the T14 Armada super weapon Death Star laser project that exists on paper and maybe in a few <laughs> cardboard cutouts somewhere. Um, and it got blown up. Got blown up just the same as everything else. Uh, these have only started being deployed since like 2015, 2016, 2017. There's not a lot of them. Somebody said that there's only 20 of them in the Russian army. I don't know about that. But when even these modernized vehicles are just getting blown up the same way as all the others, it sort of indicates that the Russian reliance on armor is not, um, is not an accurate uh, placement of their faith in this war. 
especially as we see now that at least 5,000 Javelin missile systems have been sent from the United States, several thousand NLAWs, several thousand other kinds. And we're seeing that the Ukrainian artillery is becoming increasingly accurate um, or at least can adjust very quickly with drones. There's a few videos out of essentially if the first round doesn't hit the tank that they're aiming at, the second round usually does. That's very, very good accuracy, especially if you're firing with old Soviet pieces. It's unclear um, how many of the American artillery pieces have made their way to the front. Uh, we know that there are allegedly 70% of them have been delivered, as has an equivalent amount of ammunition. The exact locations of where they are, it's not something we probably need to know.